again. This is Peter Diadamo. And Tara Nayak. And we are presenting the Health and Happiness Podcast, Episode 2, Secretors and Nannies. As by way of introduction, I am a doctor of naturopathic medicine, educator at the University of Bridgeport. I wrote a book several years ago called Eat Right for Your Type, which became associated with what's known as the blood type diet. And I'm pleased today to be able to do this podcast yet again with one of my star protégés, Dr. Tara Nyack. I am a naturopathic physician as well, practicing in Philadelphia, PA. And I also teach at the University of Bridgeport. I teach your course, Generative Medicine, Spreading the Word. And I also teach for Maryland University of Integrative Health, their epigenetics and nutrigenomics courses. Today's uh, topic is secretors and nannies. And the word nani is actually not a word. It's just simply the way some of the people who have this particular genetic outcome refer to themselves. The technical name is non-secretor, uh, but who wants to be identified as being not the thing that everyone else is? But it turns out that that's actually relatively apt because the world of secretors and non-secretors follows distinct demographic patterns. And before we get into that, I'd like to just talk a little bit about one of the interesting characteristics that arises when you look at this particular uh, genetic marker. And it's something called the 80-20 rule. Uh, comes from a mathematician named Pareto. And he discovered in Italy in the 18th century that 80-20 uh, rules existed in all sorts of groups and in cultures and nature. But he was looking at who owned real estate in Italy during the 1800s, and he concluded that it was relatively consistent that no matter where you went, 20% of the people owned 80% of the real estate. And this became actually what's known as a, a power law relationship. It's used in network analysis all the time. But it's actually true of many other things as well. For instance, if you've ever volunteered in an organization, you'll probably discover that 20% of the volunteers actually do all 80% uh, of the work. And this is actually the case, that there's always a small section of people who are overrepresented when it comes to certain things. Why I bring this up is that actually the population of people who are non-secretors is roughly 20% and the population of people who are secretors is about 80%, and that follows the 80-20 rule because if you look at the percentage of people with complex, difficult-to-decipher health issues, 80% of them are 20% who are the non-secretors. So the question becomes, a non-secretor or secretor of what? Your blood type antigen. So secretors are actually emitting their free blood type antigen into their mucosal secretion. So last podcast, we talked a little bit about the ABO gene, and we talked about these little sugars that are attached to your red blood cells. We talked about the glycocalyx. Well, these little sugars are also freely secreted into your mucosa, and it can convey a whole bunch of benefits in terms of uh, immune prevention and interaction with the foods that you eat. Your body loves to actually put your blood type chemical in places where it communicates with the environment. It actually uses your blood type to sort of condition the environment to closely kind of represent that which would be most desirable to you. So for instance, if I was, for instance, a woman, uh, my vaginal tract might have large amounts of my blood type in the vaginal secretions. In this case, it, since I'm blood type A, the vaginal secretions would have A antigen or a sugar called Galnac. Uh, and acetylgalactosamine, this would be actually secreted in copious amounts in my vaginal fluid because by putting my blood type in my 
vaginal fluid, I'm kind of calling out to the environment saying, we like things that look like this. We like bacteria that like to munch on this. We like things that look like this to my immune system. In other words, it's a sort of a way of trying to figure out how you can condition the environment to minimize things that might be problematic. And imagine how if you were a bacteria or something that looked like an opposing blood type, the exact opposite would happen. I would carry antibodies against those people. So they would have an especially difficult time, those critters and cells and things. And you mentioned, you know, places, you mentioned the vaginal tract, and, and we can also talk about, you know, the nasal mucosa or the oral mucosa, where these are really primary sites of entry for a bacteria. This is the first place where a bacteria is going to enter our system. Um, but there's also the interaction between food and when we're actually ingesting um, lectins, like we talked about in the last podcast, and how those lectins bind to our blood type and interact with the free antigen in the case of secretors. Right. So roughly 20% of us are missing a functioning gene called FUT2. Actually, they're missing a part of the gene of FUT2 that's responsible for synthesizing a free form of your blood type. To understand how that works, let's understand that your blood type can come either bound or unbound, meaning that the bound form is going to be stuck to you. It's going to be on your artery walls. It's going to be lining the respiratory passages. It's going to be embedded and really not terribly mobile. That actually is done regardless of your secretor status. It's done because it's a fundamental fact of, of who you are. And you would need those blood type antigens to do all sorts of things. As a matter of fact, when you were an embryo, they were sculpting you at that point, saying this is where we put the arteries and this is where we put the nerves. But the reality of the whole thing is that the unbound form, the body is a little bit more elect, uh, elective over. Um, about 20% of us are missing a functioning gene called fucosal transferase. But it turns out that the gene symbol FUT2, uh, something you'll not find on the stock exchange, but you will find in your genome, uh, stands for fucosal transferase 2. It's the number 2 of what's known as a fucosal transferase. So it, it re enzymes are typically named after what they do. And a fucosal transferase transfers the sugar fucose from one place to another. And apparently, being able to have this function allows for the production of your blood type antigen in a way that doesn't attach to anything. It just kind of flies around in your secretions. And so if you have the FUT2 gene working, you produce enough of this fucosal transferase to be able to produce this circulating free-form blood type antigen. But a lot of people have a knockout of the gene. In other words, it, it doesn't work. As a matter of fact, it's actually something you can use t uh, saliva testing for back in the old days. And now in the genomic era, you can use a SNP that's typically reported by things like 23andMe. And it's, uh, the SNP is called RS601338. And it's the SNP on the FUT2. And you can actually use a search and replace if you download your raw data from 23andMe. Find that SNP. And if it turns out that you have the genotype AA on that SNP, you are a non-secretor. If you have either GG or GA, you're a secretor. And so we should tell them what a SNP is. A SNP oh, is just a, a variant in your gene code that dictates what form of the gene that you have. Right. It's actually a location on your genome where you can vary from other people. So for instance, you know, you've got all these billions of addresses on your genome, and most of the time we all have the same outcome. It's a letter of the alphabet called A, T, C, or G, right? It's the old DNA code. 
But there are certain places where a location where people vary and that the 80% of the population might have a G there and 20% of the population may have an A there. And that 20%, if they have the A there, apparently it makes the FUT2 gene not work. Okay, so the only working version can be produced if you have a GG or you have what's called a heterozygous, you have a GA. It's a little bit of genetics, but the end result is, is that if you wanted to know your secretor status, you can do testing for that. It's available from uh, North American Pharmacal has a test that's available. Uh, the other side of the coin is you could actually look it up in your 23andMe data and get that as well. Why is it so important to know if you are a non-secretor versus a secretor? Well, there's a lot of biological things that are really important, and we'll go through those some, uh, one by one. Uh, the also thing uh, to understand, too, is that it makes some, for us some fairly significant changes to the basic blood type diets. And it's important, for instance, if you do have the additional information on your non-secretor status, you can, you can really uh, sort of refer to a book that I wrote several years after Eat Right for Your Type called Live Right for Your Type. And that contained extra information that was relevant for the people who had non-secretor status. Eat Right didn't make that distinction. In Eat Right, people only came in uh, vanilla, strawberry, chocolate, and pistachio, the four basic blood types. But then when I got the chance to write a follow-up book, I could include the extra information on secretor status. And now all of a sudden we had some additional ways. And remember in a prior podcast that I said that the blood type diet works pretty well. Maybe 80% of the time, 85% of the time, people get some good results. And the idea of being able to incorporate the non-secretor thing is, amongst other things, if you're not getting what you consider to be a great result from the blood type diet, see maybe if you're falling into this smaller category of non-secretors and perhaps maybe make some further adjustments and see if you can improve the odds of you getting a beneficial effect. And these are just levels of personalization. I think that's something that we should highlight at this moment, which is that you know, since your original book, you've worked to continue to personalize and hone in as precise as possible as precisely as possible using at this level we're now talking about genomics we're talking about the microbiome all of the bacteria in your gut um, or on your skin and your vaginal tract and um, we continue to keep working towards being even more specific right and me and we're talking about really if we look at ABO and the FUT2 secretor gene you're talking two genes and already, with just two genes, you're, you're way ahead of any sort of one-size-fits-all advice because there are significant physiological differences that are known to be associated with both secretor status and ABO blood types. And they play significantly into things like being able to understand what you're sort of best suited for. The most important one is an enzyme called intestinal alkaline phosphatase. So, I mean, this can dictate your eating pattern because intestinal alkaline phosphatase really transfers the ability to be able to digest proteins, animal proteins specifically. And, you know, this plays out clinically for me all the time. Whenever I have somebody that's really just a tough case, they usually turn out to be a non-secretor and their ability to digest uh, animal proteins because of the enzymes available in their digestive tract are actually at a lower level as compared to their secretor counterparts. So this can really dictate how much animal protein or animal products you should be ingesting and whether or not your specific gut has the capacity to do so. And it turns out that actually the intestinal alkaline phosphatase has two really quite profound effects in the gut, both of which are related to actually ingesting protein, like Dr. Nyack says. 
Uh, intestinal alkaline phosphatase actually was the, when, when we were five to seven weeks old, it was the most pronounced enzyme in our body because it actually is involved largely in the genesis and repair of the lining of the gut that has to do with uh, what are called the microvilli. All the absorptive aspects of the gut are under the control of this enzyme. So when we're actually making our intestinal tract at weeks five to seven, the enzyme skyrockets in a tremendous amount, becomes very, very uh, significant and, and uh, largest produced enzyme at that period. And then after that, the amount kind of goes downwards. But it's still used on an ongoing basis to repair the, the day-to-day damage. Uh, but the interesting thing is that it does two things that most people would be surprised to hear. Intestinal alkaline phosphatase increases your absorption of calcium, and it splits cholesterol. And yet, it's an enzyme that's turned on by the protein in your diet. Now, one of the things that was almost like a, one of the Ten Commandments of most registered dietitians back in the 1980s was that if you ate protein, you were going to basically have bone loss. This was called the bone hypothesis. And the theory was that if you ate a lot of animal protein, your body would acidify, and your body would have to rob the calcium off your bones to blunt the acidity. And it turned out that there was some theoretical basis for that, but it didn't, it didn't pan out. And one of the reasons it didn't pan out was they discovered there were certain people who responded to the increase in acidity from the meat diet by simply increasing their absorption of calcium from their diet. They didn't take anything off their bones. They just increased the absorption. The interesting thing is that you will find, for instance, that people who have um, cholesterol issues, who are told, for instance, that they should avoid animal products because of the effects of animal products on their cholesterol, considerable number of people will come back and say, no, I went on a high-protein diet, my cholesterol actually dropped. And these are almost always going to be, for instance, people who are type O, and probably more, most specifically people who are type O secretors, because with type O secretors, you're going to have the highest level of this alkaline phosphatase enzyme. And so when these people eat the protein, the high level of alkaline phosphatase increases their calcium absorption and splits the cholesterol into much more manageable fractions. So again, here's the, 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 the problem with that. We spent the entire 1980s in a sort of fatphobic nutritional environment in terms of what we were being you know, told by the people who were uh, setting nutritional policy. That'd be low fat, high complex carb. And it turns out that it's, if you take blood type and secretor status into effect, it, it, you can predict people that's going to have an absolutely opposite effect then. I also wonder about people that are type O vegans because veganism is on the rise for a number of reasons um, and their levels of intestinal alkaline phosphatase because as you mentioned, protein is the actual inducer of the enzyme. So what happens to a type O person when they're not ingesting any protein? Any animal protein? Well, I can tell you from some of my own experience, there are, well, I mean, there was a, a, another physician critic who was apoplectic when I wrote The Blood Type Diet because he was uh, a type O vegan, and his, his answer to what I was postulating in The Blood Type Diet was that he was super healthy vegan and everything was just wonderful. And paradoxically, the guy dies of colon cancer a couple of years later. Now, did, I don't think being an old vegan makes you die of colon cancer, but you would think that if anybody's going to not get colon cancer, it's going to be a vegan regardless of your blood type. So it was a little um, uh, a little odd to, to contemplate that, you know, this person 
from the looks of things, derived almost no benefit from a vegan diet. On the other hand, people who are type A uh, do fairly well on a vegan-slash-Mediterranean-slash kind of Okinawan-slash diet. But the interesting thing, and this will give you an idea of the variations of what we're talking about, so imagine a grayscale that goes, you know, from white to black, and, and black being having like oodles of alkaline phosphatase. That would be the osocretor. At the other end would be, on the spectrum, would be the area where the page was white, and those are people who have next to no alkaline phosphatase, and those are anonsecretors. If you were to look at the amount of difference between the osocretor who makes high levels and the asocretor who makes almost no levels, it's almost a five-fold difference in this enzyme. So you can imagine a 500% difference in an enzyme that's the single most important predictive factor in your ability to benefit from meat. The other interesting thing, and this was a study that came out years later, is that they actually found that the physical presence of the type A antigen, in other words, the people who were type A secretors who made the antigen, that the physical presence of the antigen actually inactivated the intestinal alkalinized enzyme. So the very fact of being an A actually tends to blunt the enzyme even the small amounts that you make. Well, that's important, though, and we should really highlight that because from what we previously said, you might deduce that no matter what blood type you were, if you ate this protein, you would induce the enzyme. But what you're saying is just the presence of your free type A antigen actually inhibits the enzyme itself. Right. There's actually, um, that's called an epistatic effect, where basically the physical representation of one gene inhibits the genetic representation of another. And so ultimately, we could look at other things. For instance, we know that Clotting factors, factor eight in particular, what is known as the von Willebrand factor, that varies by ABO blood type. In this case, type A's being higher than type O's. And this actually is even known by some hematologists because factor eight is a common uh, biomarker that's used in people who are getting like anticoagulant therapy and stuff. And most people will, well, most what I would consider to be cool uh, hematologists know that that can vary 30% in normal subjects by blood type. So in two normal subjects with no disease, the type A person's levels will be 30% higher than the type O's. Well, and if you want to know, you could just prick somebody's finger. I mean, if you take dehydration out of the equation, every time I prick someone's finger and they're a good bleeder, I'm guessing that they're probably a type <laughs> O. And especially, for instance, because most people don't like getting their finger uh, stabbed, and that tends to raise their stress levels. And in the 1970s, it was discovered in, Austri in Australia that coagulation is very much increased in people who are blood type A under stress. Mm -hmm. So this guy actually did studies where he looked at uh, viscosity through a special machine, and certain types of cancer, stress, diabetes always increase the viscosity of people who are type O. And that partially explains why they're a little bit more prone to heart attacks and heart disease, because one of the things you need in order to generate the beginning of the inflammation that causes the arterial function is a little bit of a slightly coagulated blood. And put that in combination with some inflammatory type things that start to get at the lining of the artery wall, and it, that sets into motion the immunological reactions which causes the platelet aggregation, which causes the calcium, which attracts the cholesterol. So you can see where the cholesterol is like one of the last people who arrive in the sh at, the, at the whole show. You know, by that time, basically, you're, you've, you're, you know, what's, what's, what's happening has already been preordained. Well, and, and overlay that with all the environmental factors that we add in. So even thinking about 
things like birth control pills. A type A person would be much more likely in this case to experience the side effects of clotting that are largely associated with uh, oral contraceptive pills. It's also known, for instance, with type A's that there's a, that, that coagulation causes a much greater increase in something called peripheral artery disease, where like the small arteries in your legs and stuff start to get occluded, uh, and that actually is strong associations in both men and women. And I mean, it, since the 1950s, there's been a strong association with uh, type Oh, uh, type A rather, and, and heart disease, and uh, ischemic heart disease, myocardial infarction. And a lot of that is, of course, you know, what do most people eat? Most people eat a mildly atherogenic diet. They, they eat a diet that is mildly inclined to give them heart disease. I say mildly because some people will eat that diet and never get heart disease, and other people will eat that diet and wind up with heart disease at a very early age. And it turns out that one of the best predictors of that is, is blood group. If you're type A and you're eating a kind of basic Western diet, you're going to probably have, well, if you don't have a problem eventually with heart disease, you'll probably wind up with one of the other significant chronic diseases as well. Speaking of diseases, we can talk about how the FUT2 gene or the variant of secretor versus non-secretor actually can convey some benefit or risk in certain diseases. So specifically the neurovirus, which is, I think, widely known for, is is this the cruise ship virus? Yes. it's uh, And actually, it, it turns out that actually norovirus is, is, has taken off considerably in the last couple of years. You're talking about entire universities coming down with this thing. But but actually, it's one of the one of the small uh, advantages of being a non-secretor is that you apparently are much less likely to get this norovirus. I've told patients that actually they should go take those cruises after they have one of those outbreaks because, you know, they, they lower the prices and you're never going to get the virus anyway. But why is it? Why is it that a non-secretor would be less susceptible to the norovirus? I guess uh, I, I don't really know the exact mechanism, but um, some of it probably has to do with a, either the, the level of inf- inflammation that gets set up by the virus as part of its infectious process or that there's maybe a slightly more effective antiviral defense mounted. The interesting thing about being a non-secretor is it's, it's sort of, being a secretor is like having a town, it's like a medieval town where you have all the best walls and turrets and you've got archers on the parapets there so that anybody who comes near the town basically has a very difficult time from the start. Being a non-secretor is like not not investing any money in walls and deciding that you're going to fight the whole thing right in the city, uh, you know, and, and have street fighting and stuff. It's it in a way perhaps maybe at some point represented a, a, an economy that you didn't have to spend so much time sorting out the outside or the walls of the city. On the other hand, to fight inside the city itself leads to quite a bit of unnecessary destruction that maybe could have been kept outside the city, which had you had better walls. Yeah, and so I always think of mucos, uh, mucus rather, as a layer of defense anyway, just by its nature of being thick and viscous and making things hard to attach. But people that actually have free blood type antigen secreted into their mucus have just that additional layer of having something that a bacteria or bacterium can bind to. Sure. Instead of binding directly to the cells. Right. See, with a non-secretor, all those bad guys get the real thing. Versus, There's a bunch of sugar hanging out waiting to be bound right. up. With a, with a secretor, you don't know if you got the real thing or if you got the decoil, the decoy molecule. But there's other things, too. We know that, for instance, that there's a, a certain class of antibodies called IgA, immunoglobulin A, 
and and this antibody is typically the one that's embedded in your mucus linings and tissues. Uh, it acts sort of like a immunological paint. It's kind of like just there as a sort of, I don't know, I guess you could call it like a barbed wire or a landmine, you know, if we're going to go with the medieval city analogy. Now we've got barbed wire and landmines. <laughs> but the reality is that IgA is one of the first lines of defense, and you can find it's usually one of the first antibodies compromised in people who have chronic inflammatory diseases or chronic issues with resistance and stuff. And this low IgA was associated with non-secretor status from the early 1950s, and it partially explained why non-secretors get more things like mitral valve prolapses. In other words, they've got more bacteria flying around in their bloodstream and can land on their heart valves and things. So what's the strategy here is that really, yeah, let's, let's, let's understand that having the ability to fight a good battle in terms of street fighting is nice, but let's not rely on that as the only strategy. Let's try to get a little something a little bit more... Uh, preemptive, try and fight these things before we actually have to fight them right in the, you know, the center of town. Um, you see things like, for instance, environmental sensitivities are much more profound in non-secretors. So although we're talking a lot about non-secretors here, it's because, as I said before, when I talked about the 80-20 rule, they're 20% of the population. But if you look at the people with the chronic befuddling inflammatory autoimmune mystery illnesses, they're 80% of those, even though they're 20% of the population. A couple of things. Let's talk a little bit about some other important aspects of the secretor status as well, and that has to do with the changes in microbiome. Yeah, so actually we're going to do our article in the news, or in the literature section. So recently um, there have been studies into the composition of breast milk, human breast milk, which we know as the most perfect food there is, because we know for sure that humans were intended to drink breast milk. And there's huge differences between the makeup of the breast milk from a non-secretor mom versus the breast milk of a secretor mom. And they've shown that this actually influences the the infant's microbiome. So we see changes in diversity. Diversity in microbiome is a good thing. It actually conveys a huge health and immune benefit. And it actually stabilizes the microbiome to have when you have a secretor as a mother. So non-secretors, not only are you a little bit immune compromised, you're also not kicking out the best breast milk either. Right. Now, that actually kind of leads to another thing, which can be important as well, which is the fact that actually it's very smart to think about actually utilizing probiotics on a blood type basis as well. Uh, one of the things that I developed many years ago, and it turns out that DuPont now has just taken out a patent on, on something that I developed 20 years ago, so we're going to see where this goes. But, but nonetheless, the idea being that um, bacteria have uh, like to eat according to their blood type as well. Uh, th there are certain bacteria that love to nosh on the type A antigen, and other bacteria like to nosh on the type O antigen. So be able to actually use bacteria that are going to be more in line with your blood type environment is a smart way to be able to get permanent change in your microbiome because what we've discovered is when you use a one-size-fits-all probiotic, your, your microbiome will change, but only as long as you keep taking the probiotic. As soon as you stop, it goes back to what it was before. So you can actually buy probiotics that are designed specifically for your blood type stresses and poor dietary choices can really be taxing on the intestinal tract. 
And recent studies have documented a clear role for our ABO blood type and secretor status in determining the makeup of our microbiome, which is all of the bacteria that live in our digestive tract. The design of the polyflora probiotics are blood type specific and contain prebiotics that are blood type specific friendly foods. Probiotics are acid bacteria organisms and cultured food products that support healthy intestinal and digestive balance. And the prebiotics are the nutrients that help support their growth. With this knowledge, you can buy blood type specific probiotics. Foods you eat react chemically with your blood type. So personalizing both your food and supplement choices with probiotics and prebiotics with the polyflora supplements will allow you to support healthy digestion. You can find these products at foryourtype.com. And one of the things that's actually I found very interesting is they found that actually the secretor, uh, non-secretor thing uh, with FUT2 had a significant effect on things like bifidobacteria, where it turns out that there's almost a 50,000-fold difference in bifidobacteria between secretors who have higher amounts and non-secretors who have lower amounts. So to go to your story with regard to the breast milk, it might be smart, for instance, if you are a non-secretor and you are... um, going to contemplate breastfeeding, it might be smart to pop the particular probiotic for your ABO blood type because some of it will probably wind up on your skin or in the nipple area or even in the milk itself. And that's a wonderful way to being able to ensure that your baby actually gets a a wider range of these these, uh, uh, blood uh, blood group substances and some of the microbiome that will get them off to a good start. Yeah. And we should just touch on the microbiome because that's going to be our next episode and just highlight the fact that the reason we're even talking about the microbiome is because of all of the research that's coming out currently on how the bacteria that we live in symbiosis with. So we are covered in bacteria on our skin and especially in our guts, and we can't survive without them. And we know, we've know we known for a long time that these bacteria help us to digest foods, but what we've learned more recently is that it affects everything from our mood to our immune, our, our immune function, hormonal imbalances are all affected. Um, and the research just keeps coming. They've recently you know, commissioned the Human Microbiome Project to figure out w- how exactly um, the microbiome affects us. And we'll definitely delve into that in the next episode. You know, the interesting thing about the um, thing you were saying with regard to the milk was that it would appear to me that, for instance, again, breast milk quality is probably one thing where being a non-secretor puts you at a little bit of a disadvantage. Uh, and that's, again, something else that you can recognize easily by just doing some little, a little bit of investigative work on yourself. What's your blood type? What's your secretor status? Okay, if you're a non-secretor, you're going to probably want to supplement with certain types of things. One of the things that, makes, that comes to mind for me, believe it or not, is uh, if you're a non-secretor who's interested in doing a little bit of enhancement work on the quality of your breast milk is to look at things like sea vegetables, like, for instance, bladder rack or fucus, which have uh, sugars called fucose, which can actually play a role in the development of the infant's brain and nervous system. And studies have shown that actually when breast milk is rich in fucose, uh, the actual production of the neurotransmitter synapses in the brain becomes greatly increased because Although we're familiar with nerves having, you know, connecting the end of one nerve to the beginning of another, the actual real thought processes occur when nerves go into the side of each other's nerves, what are called associative synapses, because that's actually what creates the web-like effect that gives us the ability to have a thought or a memory. And most of those associative synapses require the sugar fucose for their enhancement. And of course, this is precisely the one thing that's not going to be all that profound in the mother 
as milk of a non-secretor. So thinking in terms of utilizing blood group-specific probiotics, being able to think in terms of being able to use sea vegetables to increase the amount of fucose in the diet are just really, they're smart things that don't have a downside, but they, they just give that little bit of an added advantage um, from just the benefit of the knowledge. Now, if secretors, on the other hand, they have an Achilles heel or two. Um, they're probably a little bit more prone to SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, because guess what? When you're secreting large amounts of your blood type in your digestive tract, you're feeding lots of bacteria, and sometimes that's not necessarily something that you've controlled. It's, it can be uncontrolled growth. Um, antibiotics, uh, certain types of dietary indiscretions, other types of prescription drugs, high levels of stress, these are going to be more profoundly associated with a risk for a small intestine bacterial overgrowth in secretors than in non-secretors. And then finally, although I don't think there's been any real hardcore studies on this, it's probably likely that secretors have a higher rate of malignancy in terms of the ability of the malignancy perhaps to go a little bit worse in them than in non-secretors. Meaning, meaning a cancer that would spread faster. Right, because think about it. If I'm a cancer that's decided that I'm going to look like blood type A, and I'm in the body of a secretor who not only has blood type A on their cells, but flying around in all their secretions, this is very tall grass. And it might be something that would allow me to hide a little bit better from the, re the reconnaissance and the, the actual function of the immune system to find these things out in the early stages. And that in particular is certainly something that's borne out by observation. In particular type A secretors, I always tend to want to have, if they are under my care for cancer, uh, an extra level of um, uh, protection. I always go an extra, if, 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 if at this point, everybody's in agreement that this is sufficient. If it's a type A secretor, I add other things because I just never think that I'm comfortable with any degree of certainty that we've done it all. So it's really a situation, again, where, and paradoxically, this has led at times for me as a naturopath to have sent patients back to oncologists saying, I think the chemo protocol that was prescribed for you wasn't aggressive enough. And so ultimately, again, what's the advantage of this is that you you don't have to live by a philosophy. You let the specific case, the specific indications tell you what to do rather than your philosophy driving you or your belief system. Well, this concludes our podcast on ABO and secretor status. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'd like to uh, thank my partner in crime here, Dr. Tara Nyack, for uh, adding to the discussion in her own unique way. I'd like to thank the sponsors of the podcast, North American Pharmacal, Datapunk, Informatics LLC, Center of Excellence in Generative Medicine. Dr. Nayak can be contacted at? T-A-R-A-N-A-Y-A-K-N-D.com. That's taranayaknd.com. I can be contacted at dadamo.com, D-A-D-A-M-O.com. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Robert Messinio for producing this segment, and we'll see you next time on the Health and Happiness Podcast.